Yes, I think this morning draws to an end the series that you have been doing, uh, studying the theology and teaching of some popular Christian songs. And I, I just want to start with saying I think it's a fantastic idea. I think it's fantastic to think about what we sing. We've had some great songs this morning. And as much as we open the word to remind ourselves um, of truth that's there, it's important that uh, what we sing and what we say and what we put through our minds um, is biblical and is true. Uh, and so it's a great time to remind ourselves of the study of truth um, in the sung word. We've got a great song this morning written by Charlie Lee Smith, or Bancroft as she later became. Although I see on your, uh, your screen you also had her final married name, Shene, as well, um, as the um, copyright author. But yes, we are going to be studying um, that song this morning. And uh, yeah, I look forward to this um, all week going through it with you. In 2008, I was invited to St. James's Palace in London to meet the late His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh. The invitation was suitably grand, and it was very clear on the specific, specific place and time that I was to be if I was to make sure of being allowed in to meet him. After the, the suitable security checks, I was allowed access and ushered into place where we were stood in position and told the Duke would come through one door, work his way through the room, and then promptly leave through the other door. It was a pretty brief encounter, to be honest. Uh, we exchanged a few words, and he spoke to our small group quite quickly before moving on to the next. But then you can't just expect to rock up to a royal palace, knock on the door, and invite yourself in to spend the afternoon with a member of the royal household. In order to get even that short period, I had what was a very critical part, was the invitation to get in. Without it, as I say, you, you can't just rock up and knock the door and ask yourself in. Equally, my right to be there was important. I had successfully previously completed the uh, Gold Duke of Edinburgh scheme, and all the paperwork, etc., was in order that I would be there by right to receive my reward. So the two aspects were equally important. I had my invitation. Someone had to arrange for the Duke to be in that room and invite us to join him. But equally, in order to get the invitation, in order to be there, in order to be worthy, if you like, of being in his presence, you had to have actually completed the uh, scheme. So there was the invitation and the merit of worth. In a much greater way, God's presence is somewhat similar. We need an invitation, or the word we'll use today is more like a mediator, in order to get us that invite, to get us the opportunity to be in his presence. But in order to be and dwell in his presence, we also have to be worthy to be there. And our song this morning is based on biblical truth that tells us that in the person of Jesus Christ, we find both our mediator before the Father and the means by which we can become worthy to not just visit into God's presence, as I did with the Duke, but actually instead to dwell there forever. So let's open up this song and look at two of the main themes, and then we'll finish with a point of application that's from the song itself too. The first theme we come across is Jesus, our great high priest. Mind of the lyrics, it says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. <clears throat> to help us with this term of high priest, we need to go back in our Bibles to the Old Testament. For the nation of Israel in that period, God's presence on earth was embodied in, well, two places, but one on either time or date. First of all, we had the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle and later it became the inner sanctuary of the temple. Within this inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, we sometimes call it, you had the Ark of the Covenant, 
with its mercy seat laid with the two cherubim facing towards each other with their wings spread out. And that was all behind a thick, heavy curtain, keeping it hidden from the rest of the tabernacle and temple. The average person, you or I, for example, would have to cleanse ourselves and ensure that we've been consecrated before entering even the courts of either the tabernacle or temple. But the ritual that the high priest had to go through in order to enter specifically the holy inner sanctuary on the Day of Atonement, which only happened once a year, was at another level. Listen to what he had to go through. First, to take a bath. He could start. Before donning the holy linen garments that only the high priest was allowed to wear. Then he should offer a bull as a sin offering for himself before taking two goats for the people, killing one as a sacrifice, and later on laying its hands on the goat as a sign of the people's sin and sending it out of the camp into the wilderness. That's where we get the term scapegoat from. Then, once this was done, he would take incense with him, go inside the veil to access the Holy of Holies. And now Leviticus 16 tells us that up until this point, all these things had to be done purely just so the high priest would not die when he enters that space. So you can talk about a, a occupational hazard. So when he's there, now he's, has, now he's entered that place is when he fulfills his act of sprinkling blood on the mercy seat, first for himself and then for the people, before further sprinkling blood all over the temple space. All of this was an effort by the high priest to make atonement, not just for the people and for their sins, but also for the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle and temple itself. The problem they had was the sin of the people not only got between them and God in their relationship, It even defiled the space in which God dwelt in their presence. Hence the need for this ritual by the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. It was his main, unique act that he fulfilled as the high priest. So ultimately, it was the high priest's role to enter this gap between the people and God in this manner. Also as well, of course, he would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people but also keep God's dwelling place clean from the tarnish of sin on this day each year. It was an important role. Without this, the people of Israel would not have been any different from the other nations. They would not have been able to enjoy this unique relationship with God. And so these were important tasks that God had ordained for the high priest and indeed all of Israel to obey and to fulfill. The high priest, you see, he mediated the relationship between the people and God. He dealt with their sin problem that existed within that relationship. And he was the go-between messages from God to the people and offerings of sacrifice on behalf of the people to God. In Hebrews 5, we are given a summary of the attributes of a high priest. We're going to be in Hebrews in a few places this morning, so it might be worth turning there. I'll not read through these verses, but I'll give you a quick summary of these particular ones in chapter 5 and verse 1 to 4. We are given a summary of the attributes of a high priest. Firstly, we're told that they come from among man. They are to be a peer, an advocate from among humankind itself. They weren't to be from outside. They were to be within the Israelite community. Second, their responsibility was to act on behalf of men in relation to God. They were to be in that position, as we've discussed Approaching God on behalf of the people. 
Thirdly, we're told that they are to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. They are to be aware of their own weaknesses so they can do that humbly. They're also to be aware of God's teaching so that they can do it rightly. Fourthly, they are to offer sacrifices for sin, first always for their own, and then also for those of the rest of the people. And fifthly, they are called to the role by God. Young, young Israelite at Sunday school would not just be allowed to say, what are you going to do when you grow up? I'm going to be a high priest. You don't get to volunteer into the role. You're called to it by God. And uh, that was primarily through the lineage that came from Aaron. The reason that this is turning up in Hebrews, which is a letter to the Jewish people, remember, is because the writer of Hebrews wants to really reinforce and make sure that the readers are very aware that this role was important for the Jews living today at that point as it was previously. Because now, like us, they were living on the new covenant side of history. They were living in view of who the person of Jesus Christ was. And so the writer is casting their minds back to how things used to be because it would help them understand how things are now going to be now that Jesus had come, died, suffered, rose again, and was back in heaven. And so that's the same for us. These are important contexts. So armed with this knowledge and understanding of the context, let's look at how Jesus becomes our great high priest. Firstly, Jesus is fully man. Like we've seen in chapter, in chapter 5, at those three verses, Jesus fulfills this role in the same way because he emptied himself and took on the flesh of a man. Of a man. Great to hear you'll be studying Philippians when you get to chapter 2. You'll come across that great passage about Jesus emptying himself humbly and becoming the bondservant for us. He became like us so that he was able to take on this role. It's one of the important reasons why Jesus had to become man. He had to become fully man so that he was fully justified to take on the role and the office of high priest that God had mandated centuries before. Secondly, Jesus gains permanent access to God's presence. This is where he starts to differ a little bit from what happened before. Let's look at Hebrews. Go back a chapter to Hebrews chapter 4 and look at verse 15 with me. The writer says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Those last three words are very important because they set Jesus aside from all the previous high priests who came. Remember the ritual of cleansing, offering sin sacrifices for himself that the Old Testament priesthood had to do continually every year, every time he wanted to go into the sanctuary. For Jesus, there's no need for him to do this. He doesn't do that. He doesn't need to just go into God's presence for a short period of time. Jesus can go into the Father rightly without the previous consecration, without the cleansing, because he's already holy and without sin. But importantly, he can then dwell in his presence because Jesus, like the Father, is perfectly holy. This might just seem quite good, solid, evangelical teaching for us, but remember. To the Jew, this was staggering. Centuries of this tradition of going into God's presence one day a year. And here Jesus is saying, I can go in for you and I will stay there forever. 
Before the high priest had got back to his tent on the Day of Atonement, he was already dirty and defiled with sin that he had to wait a whole year before cleansing himself to earn the right to go back in again for one day. Jesus, though, is always before the Father because he is without tarnish. Thirdly, then, Jesus acts on our behalf when he gets there. Jesus knows what we need, and as our high priest, he can therefore be our advocate. Because Jesus lives, the old priesthood is passed away, and Christ now lives to make intercession for us for all time. There's not going to be the continual lineage from Aaron that we've seen up to the point when Jesus arrives on the scene. Let's look at the next verse in chapter 4, verse 16. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Remember, that's just following from the previous verse. So what we're being told here is that we receive mercy and find grace as Christians and believers because Christ is standing before the Father. The source of mercy and grace for the believer comes through the intercessory work of Jesus. We don't deserve it, but because Jesus is there, we gain access to it. So we start to get a picture of what it is that Jesus is doing for us when he's standing in God's presence or seated at the right hand, as it's put differently in other parts of the New Testament. So fourthly then, when Jesus is there, he also, like the previous high priest, offers sacrifice for us. But this time it's much greater. You see, if we just go back a minute, just by having Jesus in God's presence as our great high priest, it doesn't deal with our problem of sin. Yes, it's great that Jesus is there as our high priest, but that doesn't straight away make us free of sin. Flip over a couple of pages to Hebrews chapter 9, and we see in verse 22 what the writer is trying to explain through this point. It says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now stay with me, because this is important. It helps us understand the cross much better. By having Jesus as our perfect advocate, think of a courtroom. We're in the dock. We're the, we're the one being charged. We've got the perfect advocate. Jesus representing us before the Father. We're receiving mercy and grace from him as much as we have right to because of his advocacy. <clears throat> but we're still found guilty. We know our guilt of sin. The perfect advocate still can't get you off the hook on that one. You're still found guilty. Having a perfect advocate who's willing to represent you doesn't straight away make you free. That comes through a separate act. We're told in Hebrews 9 that there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood because as God has been teaching his people for thousands of years at this point, there is a cost to forgiveness. He's teaching them about redemption. And so Jesus is going to do something about that too. I... I came across this, uh, this sign at Botanic Gardens recently. Cleanse your souls. I thought they're close. They're close. They've almost got the right idea. And I think it's a very deliberate play on words. But uh, if I can flip it back to what it should be, we do indeed need our souls to be cleansed. 
maybe just slightly different from the nice folks at Botanic Gardens think. And so that brings us on to our second point. Jesus, the theme from this song, Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. So not only is he the high priest performing the sacrifice, we're going to see Jesus himself puts himself on the altar as the sacrifice. Upward I look and see him there, the song says, who made an end to all my sin because the sinless Savior died. Not a word you're expecting. This is the first time of hearing about Jesus. My sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and then pardon me. As we've already looked at, the sacrificial system was a reminder of the cost of sin. And it taught the Israelites of the need for redemption. You see, the bulls and goats were never sufficient to last. It says that elsewhere in Hebrews and elsewhere in the New Testament. So they needed to be repeated. They were a covering up of sin. In order that we would continue to have that relation, the Israelites could continue to have that relationship with God. But it wasn't restoring them back to that permanent peace, that permanent oneness that Adam and Eve first enjoyed with God in the garden. Rather, this repetitive process, shedding blood of animal after animal, provided just that covering. And Jesus, rather than partaking back in the old method of continual sacrifices, one after another, to continue this covering up process, he provides a way that will fulfill our need for redemption and draw a close to the sacrificial system once and for all. He offers the perfect and, importantly, the final sacrifice of his own body. final bit to look at in Hebrews is on chapter 9. Go on down and we'll pick it up in verse 24. Sorry, back up. For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. So the copies of the, the Holy of Holies, what the writer's saying, in the temple and the tabernacle, they were just reflections of true things that exist in heaven. That is God's presence. So Christ has not entered into these places, but to heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's the first thing we've looked at. That's the high priesthood he's taken up. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priests enter the holy places every year, the day of atonement, we looked at that too, with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus steps in and says, enough of this repetitive covering. These animals aren't worthy to properly take away sin, but I can. And I'm not only going to cover up your sin, I'm going to remove it. Take it away entirely. Because Jesus is fully human. He's completely unblemished by sin. Remember, all the animals had to be put on the altar were to be young and unblemished pointing towards Christ. And Jesus says, so my life can be offered as a perfect substitute for all people who accept my offer. Peter gives us just one of the many verses in Scripture that help back this up when he writes in 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross 
so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Now I want to add an important point here while we're on this area, because it was not that Jesus' sacrifice was an upgrade or improvement upon plan A of the animal sacrificial system that God had laid out to Moses and Aaron and the people. It's easy to think that when we read the Bible from cover to cover, we think, well, that was what happened at the start. Jesus came along and said, this isn't really working, guys. Let's just go for, go for the big hit. Let's just go in. I'll sort it out once and for all. Done. There we go. That was a lot easier than the, the repetitive method. No, don't be tempted to think about it that way. Remember, in God's mind, time is not linear. This whole plan was all part of one plan. We read it chronologically as we do to learn And he was certainly teaching Israel something and making them wait for Jesus. God's mind alone appreciates that fully. But instead, the Mosaic sacrificial system was a a shadow of Jesus. It was always designed to point to Jesus. And and if if you have time this week, go back and look. Um, in Leviticus 9 through 11 and chapter 16 about the, the instructions for the high priest and also more broadly um, in the latter book, chapters of Exodus about the instructions for the sacrificial system, you will see there are pointers to Christ all over it. A young lamb, unblemished, one who was to be as good a substitute for you as you could make. Don't, don't use the, the cheap animal from the flock that you didn't really want anyway. Use the prime one because it had to be as close to being a worthy substitute as possible. It was always designed to point to Jesus and teach the Israel nation about God's hatred of sin and teach them of the wonder of redemption. Teach them that God was willing to see not them struck down for their sin, but something else put in their place and it struck down. The problem was the bulls and calves, the lambs, they were never going to be enough. They didn't have the power to take the sin of all the world on themselves because they weren't the full worthy substitute that Jesus was. The blood that was spilled was always a signpost towards Christ's blood. And the need for a substitutionary lamb sacrifice or animal sacrifice was always a signpost to Jesus being our ultimate and perfect and right substitute. That's why in first century Israel, the idea of Jesus becoming our substitute and dying in our place was so much more revolutionary than it perhaps is to us as evangelical 21st century Christian believers. They were living in this historical age and Jesus came along and said, get rid of all that. I'm here. What was his cry on the cross? It is finished. When Christ died, the need for continual sacrifices was ended once and for all. And when he stood up as our high priest, the lineage of priesthood was cut down and ended. And that's why, folks, the Bible teaches that today there is no need for high priests to continue. There's no need for sacrifices to continue. And unfortunately, many around the world see past that important teaching of the Bible and continue, sadly, to dwell in an age of priesthood, of a, of a mediator that isn't Christ, and a sacrifice that isn't his body on the cross for them. So we have Jesus, our great high priest. 
the song teaches us about, teaches us about Jesus, our perfect sacrifice. And thirdly, I want to suggest the, theme, the last theme of this song, which is right throughout it, is that Jesus is the focus of our worship. Now, I'm not going to lie. I don't expect any of these points to have your jaw dropping this morning. These are solid Christian evangelical teaching principles. But the reason that we need to continue to go back to them is because they are so fundamental and so important. The gospel's simple, folks. The Bible's here. God's not made an enigma Rubik's Cube that it takes years of study and hard work to understand. It's very clear, and songs like this are brilliant at helping us understand the clarity uh, and, in many regards, the simplicity of the gospel message. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Just as he's interceding for us as high priest and placing himself on the altar as our perfect sacrifice was a completion of the shadowy things of the old covenant, so it is that all scripture points us to the person of Jesus. Go back and read your Old Testament throughout in full knowledge of the gospel and you'll see things popping out that don't make sense if you don't start at the other side of the book. It is Christ that invites us to come to the Father, but also Christ himself who is the way to God. John 14, three verses to finish. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Christ, we see the love of God manifest in coming to seek and save us. We see the grace of God in Jesus' willingness to lay his life down that we may live. And as we saw in Hebrews 4, we have access to God's grace and mercy because Jesus is alive and now interceding continually for us. And also, as the song reminds us, in Christ we find our guarantee, our confidence in knowing who we are, children of God, worthy to dwell with him forever. You see, it cannot be overstated how much our worship of God should center on the person of Christ. Now, of course, the Bible is filled with exhortation to give praise to God the Father and the Holy Spirit as well as Jesus. But I think in a very practical way, I want to suggest, as Christians, our focus and attention can be fixed on Jesus as a center of our worship to God. Father's role in creation and being the one to whom the Son submits is glorious, but it's by nature a a difficult personhood of the Godhead for us to grasp with and relate to the Father from our earthly low-down position. Just creating the stars by speaking is is so awesome and also so powerful that our minds just can't relate to the person who speaks those words. But Jesus says to Philip, also in John 14, says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Because Jesus is acknowledging something here. He's acknowledging that we can relate to Jesus. We can experience Jesus. As the psalmist writes, taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus is saying, taste and see me. Come to me and you'll see the Father. That's the way through. Yes, for salvation, as we know, but also for the relationship. It's Jesus that we are to fix our eyes on because when we fix our eyes on him, we're fixing our eyes and seeing the Father. And of course, we also have the Spirit living in us if we are children of God. But Jesus teaches us further here about the Spirit. In John 14, he says the Spirit's role 
is to remind us and teach us about Jesus. Verse 26, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, interesting, the Spirit comes in Jesus' name, he will teach you all things. And what are those things? Bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Again, the Spirit is channeling us towards the person of Jesus in the Godhead. So as we close, this song exhorts us to lift up Jesus in worship. I want to suggest to you that this week and in the days ahead, our experience and understanding of God is made complete in and through the person of Jesus. God is a, a, a massive idea, never, know, never mind person, to, three persons to get our head around to understand, but God reaches out to us through the person of Christ to make himself approachable. And so we should take up that path to God as he intended. Jesus comes before the Father as our great high priest, as we've seen, representing us and seeking to reconcile us with the Father. But he also, in summary, puts away the continual covering of sins by offering the final once and for all sacrifice that makes us white as snow and a result We, like Jesus, can dwell in God's presence forever. In Corinthians, Paul says that we are co-heirs with Christ. As Christ enters into that position of priesthood, as he has laid himself down as sacrifice, not only now is he in the Holy of Holies and we're all outside saying, great, we've got a great advocate. We're set free of our sins. But once that happens on the cross, what happened to the veil? torn top to bottom god says if you're with jesus come on in come on in folks if you're with jesus come into god's presence and dwell forever and so it is jesus who we fix our eyes on it is jesus who we thirst to know better and in worshiping god we worship jesus more as we sing, as we write, I give the, the closing words back to charity. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness. That's Jesus. The great, unchangeable I am. The king of glory and of grace. Amen.